Hey church, we're here in Zambia, Africa. God has been doing some exciting things and I cannot wait to share it with you all. If you've been visiting, we've been going to the book of Esther. Esther is an interesting book. It's 10 chapters with God's name never being mentioned. Now here's the interesting thing, is that although it's 10 chapters with God's name never being mentioned, you see his fingerprints all over it. The thing about Esther is that it answers the question, how do you walk faithfully when God is silent? See, in the book of Esther, in this 10 chapters, you're gonna come across these characters, characters that have this uh, control problem, characters that have authority problem, who want power and they're hungry. Others are self-promoting themselves. They want to be somebody. So they promote themselves into positions their character cannot sustain. But what you're gonna see is God's sovereignty in the midst of all this. Here's the encouraging thing for you today. If you were here today and, and you're in a part of your life, maybe you're wondering, where are you, God? What's going on? God, how do I walk faithfully when it seems like you're nowhere to be found? God, where is your sovereignty? How does all this end up for good? You may have question after question after question. What I love about Esther is that God doesn't need to announce his name or announce himself to prove that he is in control. So today, my encouragement to you is to answer this question for you. How do you walk faithfully when God is silent in your life? When you feel like you haven't heard from him and you have been praying and seeking his face and you don't have clarity, what do you do? And then on top of that, what do you do when you're seeking him and you don't have clarity and there's no fingerprints in your life of God's working? Then life gets hard. There's a lot on that to unpack, but how do you walk faithfully? We're gonna take a look at some characters today that are gonna answer this question. So get your Bibles and let's get ready to dive into the Word. As you open your Bibles to Esther chapter three, let me ask you a question. How do you respond when life doesn't go your way? Think about that. How do you respond when life doesn't go your way? When friendships don't go the direction you thought they should go? When your career isn't going where you thought it would go? How do you respond when life doesn't seem to be favoring what you want? You know, sometimes we can become bitter. We can become enraged. We can become isolated. You can even become the person who has a chip on your shoulder, just angry at life and with anyone and everyone who comes across you. We're gonna see this today. We're gonna take a look at a couple of characters. And let me catch us up on what happened with chapter two. In chapter two, we see that Esther lost both of her parents. She was an orphan. So Mordecai comes in and he adopts her. He begins to raise her, look after her. He loved her as if she was his very own. Now, here's what happens. Mordecai begins to look after her. He changes her name, and her name is now Esther. He begins to protect her identity. He doesn't want anybody to know that she's from Jewish descent. Now she is protected. Her nationality is hidden. Her identity is covered. She enters the pageant. She wins the pageant. She has favor before the queen, and here she is. She is crowned the queen. So what happens next is Mordecai wants to be sure that she's okay. He wants to be sure that now she's living with the king, that her welfare is okay. So he comes to the king's gate. Day by day, he comes to the gates and checks on her. One particular day, he comes to the gates, he checks on her, and while he's checking on her, 
he overhears two of the king's eunuchs. They're arguing, they're angry, they're filled with wrath. We don't know exactly why, but they probably weren't getting their way. So they were angry with the king because the king wasn't responding the way they thought he should be responding. So they come up with the plan. The plan was to kill the king. Mordecai hears this and thinks, I need to do the right thing. This probably is not the best king. This is not the greatest king has ever been. Morality's not great. It, everything seems to be absolutely wrong with this king. Yet, in the midst of this, when Mordecai could have said, you know what, let him be slayed. He's a bad guy anyway, he deserves it. It's not what he does. Mordecai does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. So he goes to Esther from the gates and relays the word to Esther. You have to tell the king that there are two people trying to kill him. So the king finds out, you know what happens next? These two individuals are hung on gallows in order so that everybody can see that you do not cross the king. He hung them out in public in front of everybody so they can be terrified of what happens when you cross the king. This was sending a message to everybody underneath his leadership. Do not cross him. Now let's take our Bibles and take a look at chapter 3 to see what happens next. Listen to this in verse 1. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Now let me sum up what just took place. Haman seems to get the credit for informing the king and saving the king's life. Knowing that it really wasn't him, he takes the credit, he gets promoted, he's in a position that his character cannot sustain. People begin to bow down to him, and you can imagine his ego is being filled every single day. People begin to pay him homage, the ego begin to grow. People begin to bow down, the ego, ego begin to grow. Over and over and over this would happen. At this point in time, he's sitting in a position that he shouldn't be in. His character was not ready for this position. In fact, here's how we know this, because things don't go his way. Things do not go his way, and how does he respond? Well, the scripture tells us that when Mordecai does not bow down to him, he is enraged, he has anger, and he has fury, because someone is not doing what he wants them to do. Now, scholars would say that the reason why Haman did not um, like Mordecai was because he was a Jew and Haman was from a longtime descendants who were the enemies of the Jews. In fact, if you take a look, look at Haman's descendants, you can trace them all the way back from 1 Samuel. 
in 1 Samuel, Saul was told to get rid of all of the Agagites. And guess what? He didn't. He disobeyed God. So what we see in this text is literally centuries later, Saul's disobedience is still bearing fruit. Saul's disobedience is still bearing fruit centuries later. So now there's this hate between Haman and Mordecai because Mordecai knows that this has been our longtime enemy and they have given us a very hard time. I am not bowing down. So you take a look at the life of Mordecai and he is standing firm. In fact, he's not even afraid to tell them, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew and you can do whatever you want with me. Well, here's what Haman does. He says, Mordecai, I'll do whatever I want with you. And here's what I'm going to do because of you. I am going to hurt you and I am going to get rid of all the Jews. Then I'm going to get rid of you. And so this plan begins to be put in action. Haman goes to the king and here's what he says. He says, would you give me the authority? If I gave you 10,000 talents of silver, would you give me the authority to get rid of all of the Jews? In fact, in verse 13, here's what happens next. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. And one day, the 13th of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So here's what happens. They begin to cast lot to figure out when do we get rid of the Jews. The king then gives them full authority. Letters go out everywhere, letting them know that in 11 months from now, you will be slaughtered. Fear strikes everywhere. Everyone is terrified. Can you imagine Mordecai? He's thinking, I was doing the right thing. And all this bad is starting to happen. I was doing the right thing. Where is God? I was doing the right thing. Where is justice? You can ask yourself, if you were in the place of Mordecai's life, what would you do? What would you do if you were doing the right thing and it was only causing broken relationships? What would you do if you were doing the right thing and it was only causing you to miss that promotion? What would you do if you were doing the right thing and it seemed like God was not covering his half of the deal. It seems like you're doing the right thing, but God is nowhere to be found. Mordecai has an option here. Option one, to say, you know what? I'll bow down, forget it. I will bow down. I will not stand on my conviction anymore. I'll bow down so that everything is good and everybody's safe. Or does he say this? Life isn't going my way. Things don't look good. I've trusted in God up to now, so I'm going to keep trusting in God and I'm going to keep doing the right thing. I'm not going to throw a fit. I'm not going to throw my toys, so to speak. I'm not going to throw a spiritual fit. I'm going to do the right thing. Before I answer that question of what he does, I want you to take a listen. I want you to listen to this testimony. It's unbelievably powerful of a Northrise University graduate. A North Rise University graduate was taking classes. God spoke to him and his life drastically changed. And he was met with temptation, the temptation of not doing the right thing or doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Take a listen. My name is Mulenga Chela. I'm from Africa. I was born in the nation called Zambia. In my last year of secondary education, 
I heard the Lord call me into ministry. And from that day onwards, I purposed to serve the Lord in full-time ministry as a minister. I became actively involved in a number of ministries that included street kids ministry, hospital chaplaincy, and a number of other ministries. Then the leaders in the church I was a part of saw the call of God on my life, and they gave me the first church to lead at the age of 20. When I started leading that church, I saw my need of going to seminary. In my second year at seminary, our lecture was teaching us on surrendering to the will of God and leadership preparation. And he talked about how God prepares people for leadership through trials and the challenges that we go through in life. And he used Joseph in the book of Genesis as an example. Our lecture, in the midst of his lecture, pointed at me and said, God can even take this young man here, Mulenga, from here and send him off into prison the way he took Joseph into prison and prepare him for ministry. When our lecture said those words, I looked at him in shock. I thought, why has he used me as an example over such an awful thing? Ten months later, I met a man in my home nation, Zambia, and the man said he was a missionary helping orphans and widows in Tanzania. The man invited me to go with him to Tanzania. And when we started off and arrived in the nation of Tanzania, to my shock and surprise, police officers pounced on us. They said the man that I was traveling with who said he was a missionary was actually an international criminal. And the vehicle that he was driving that I was riding on was a car that he had stolen. And since I was with an international criminal in a stolen vehicle and I was a foreigner in that nation, they said I must have been a criminal. And they ended up putting me in prison for two years in Africa. I was put in police lockup. Inside that police station, there was a small room about the size of a bedroom that had 30 men inside of it. It was crowded. The food was served in a dish and prisoners fought for food and ate like animals. The toilet was right in the corner of that room and it was broken. So all the human excrement just piled up right in the corner. When I was uh, taken into that police station, I had money equivalent to $5, which I decided to give to the pol police officer. But the other men who were arrested before me could see that I had money. And when the police officer grabbed the money from me and locked me up with them, the men inside that uh, police lockup jumped on me, held my hands and legs, started searching me. They punched me, beat me up, and finally threw me into the toilet that had human excrement. And I cried. I said, Lord, why? Why have you allowed me to suffer like this after I've been seeking you and serving you faithfully? From there, I was taken into the men prison. African prisons are congested prisons. The prison that I was in was constructed to hold 1,500 men, but it now had 5,000 men. In the room where we slept, the room was constructed to hold 15 men, and we were about 50 to 75 maximum men. It was congested. The food in prison was bad and awful. And after going into prison, I started complaining. I thought, Lord, after I have been seeking you and serving you faithfully, how could you allow me to be imprisoned? While I was there, I met a man who has been wrongfully been in prison since 1973. He's now 43 years old in prison. 
for a crime that he did not commit. And the man passionately preaches the gospel in prison, running from one end of the prison to the other. And after I saw this man and heard his testimony, the man inspired me to preach the gospel with him. So this became my daily activity in prison. In the morning, after being released from the rooms, would preach the word of God. In the afternoon, after having our main bad meal, we continued preaching the word of God. In the evening, I had the privilege of being locked up in a reception where all the people who were imprisoned in prison were put in the first few days. And I had the privilege of preaching the word of God to them. I am grateful to the Lord that during my time in prison, I had the privilege of preaching the word of God to men who had lived wicked lives as criminals. I preached the word of God to Muslims. I preached the word of God to men who had never been in church. And I'm grateful for the lives that the Lord saved and transformed. How did I get out of prison? The man who had deceived me and told me that he was uh, a missionary and yet he was an international criminal was arrested with me. And after spending a few months in prison, his true colors manifested. The man was a wicked man, a crafty man, who made enemies with the most feared criminals in prison together with the prison authorities. He had plans of escaping from prison, and when his plans failed, he decided to end his life by taking an overdose of medicine. And instead of dying, he became very, very sick. When the prison officer saw that he was sick, he called me into his office and said, Mulenga, we know that you are a genuine servant of God. And we know that this man who deceived you is a true criminal. We advise you that now that he's sick, leave him alone, don't help him. I'm grateful to the Lord that when I walked into prison, I carried my Bible with me. And I read that Bible every day. I prayed through the Bible every day. And as I read the word of God in prison, I felt the word of God become alive to me. I felt the Lord speak to me, strengthen me, encourage me. And he gave me grace to carry on during my time in prison. As I was reading the Bible, I came across Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And as I continued praying and reading the Bible, I felt the word of God become alive to me, telling me to love my enemy, love the very man who was responsible for my imprisonment. It was a difficult thing to do because the prison authority had already told me that if I helped that man, there were chances that I would be convicted for a crime that I did not do because they would see me as his ally. But God was encouraging me and telling me to love my enemy. And by the grace of God, I responded in obedience to the word of God and reached out to my enemy who was very sick in a comatose. He couldn't walk. He couldn't go to the restroom. He simply lay on the bed. I had the responsibility of feeding him, clothing him, washing him, cleaning his underwear, cleaning all of his mess. I literally took care of the man who was responsible for my imprisonment the way a mother cares for a baby. When I was doing that awful work, I started thinking to myself, I thought, what's life? What's the meaning of life when you have been wrongfully imprisoned? You are in a prison eating bad food. What's life? 
It was in those moments the Lord started teaching me that life is an opportunity that God gives to us. Life is an opportunity to love, to serve, to honor God and mankind. That even though I was wrongfully imprisoned for two years, God had given me a great opportunity in prison to love my enemy, to save my enemy, and to honor God by doing that. So as I continued helping this man, cleaning him, feeding him, I started saying to the Lord from the depth of my heart, I said, Lord Jesus, I love you. As I continue caring for this man, I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it as an expression of my love for you. Lord Jesus, I love you. And as I said those words, amazingly, I felt the presence of the Lord rest upon me. I felt the peace of God that transcends all human understanding. Ooh, weeks later, the man recovered. Finally, on the day of judgment, he stood up pointed at me and said, that man is an innocent man. He doesn't know anything about all my criminal activities. I simply carried him in the vehicle that I was driving as an ordinary passenger. And those words, the man I helped spoke in court, opened the door for me to be released and he was convicted for 10 years. If God had given me the opportunity to change these past events that had happened to me. Can I change them? No. When I read the Bible in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, from verse 2 to 5, the Bible talks about the time the Lord led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And the Bible says that before they went into the promised land, God laid them into the desert for 40 years in order to humble them, in order to test them, in order to see what was in their hearts, whether they would obey God's word or not, and in order to teach them that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Friends, I believe that the Lord laid me into prison in order to humble me, in order to test me, to see whether I would obey his word or not in order to teach me that man does not live on bread alone, on the luxury things of life alone, but on God's word and his word alone. And in order to discipline me the way a father disciplines a child that he loves. Wow. Wasn't that an amazing testimony? I told you that it was going to be unbelievable. This man today, let me just share with you. Uh, this man went to prison, falsely accused, was in these horrible circumstances, being persecuted, took this situation and could have become angry because life wasn't going his way. He could have become bitter. He could have become mad at God. He could have thrown a spiritual fit. And I have to be honest, I don't know if I could have done what he did. I don't know if I would have had that kind of faith, that kind of strength, that kind of courage to walk faithfully when God has been so silent. I don't know if I could have always done the right thing because it was the right thing to do. But what a modern day Mordecai, what a modern day Joseph, a real life story that God is still working even when we can't see him or hear him. What a real life testimony of God's sovereignty and God's power. I wish you can see his church today. Today, uh, Malinga, his church has exploded. God has used those two years in his life to build him and to mold him for the purpose of kingdom impact. You heard his story, he's sitting there in prison and, and you heard the different things he went through. And I love what he shared that it was like a father disciplining him who was bringing up things out of his heart 
And so here's what I want to tell you. I want you to think about that when life doesn't go your way, how do you respond? But not only how do you respond, what does God show you about you? I want you to think about that. When life is not going your way or friendships are not going your way or your career is not going your way or your children are not going the way you want them to go, the list can go on and on and on. But when life isn't going your way, what does God show you about you? Does he show you that you get angry? Does he show you that you get bitter? Does he show you that you just say, YOLO, what does it matter? I'm just going to do what I want to do if God's not here. What does God show you about you? Do you throw a spiritual fit? You know what's incredible is that when you see Mordecai, he doesn't throw a spiritual fit. When you see Malinga, he doesn't throw a spiritual fit. They both do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And then you see, years later, you see God do what only God can do. So as the band comes up, they're going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song and you will have pastors up at the front. Here's where I want to challenge you. We've taken the look of Esther's life and really um, Esther's life is not perfect. Mordecai's life is not perfect. They keep trying to do the right thing before God. You see Haman's life, his life doesn't go the way he wants it to go. He is infuriated. He is angry. He begins to throw a fit. Now you have two different characters we can look at today. Mordecai, life does not go as planned, but he doesn't throw a spiritual fit. Haman, life doesn't go as planned and he throws a fit. Which one are you today? Where does your heart tend to go? You know, some seasons, I feel like Haman. I feel like I'm throwing a fit because life is not going my way. I feel like I'm throwing a fit because I get tired of broken relationships. I'm throwing a fit. You can, you can put in whatever words you want there. Or there are some times where I can honestly tell you as your pastor, man, I feel like Mordecai. There are some times where I feel like I don't see the fingerprints of God. I don't hear his voice, but I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to be faithful when God is silent. And it's hard. It's hard. You know what this is like. You know what it's like to do the right thing when you're tired of doing the right thing. You're sick of doing the right thing. And sometimes it feels like you wake up every day and you are just crawling and you are giving every ounce of energy that you have left to do the right thing. Let me just encourage you and let me share with you, God sees it all. God takes note of it. And I want you to think about Malinga's testimony, that God used his faithfulness to see fruitfulness today. He uses his faithfulness of yesterday and produces fruitfulness today. God can do the same in our lives. When you think he doesn't see you, when you think it doesn't matter, it does matter. Because when you feel like God is silent and you feel like he is not looking, he is looking and what he is exposing out of you and what he is showing you are the areas of your life that you need to trust him with when things aren't going your way. Be faithful because your faithfulness today will pr produce fruit for tomorrow. Your faithfulness today will produce fruit for tomorrow. Be faithful, be faithful, be faithful. Don't get bitter. Don't get angry. Don't be filled with wrath. Don't walk around with the chip on your shoulder. Know that we serve 
the God of all God, gods, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. That is our God today. He sees it all. He knows it all. And he is present with all. That's who we serve. So as you become weary and being faithful and he is silent, keep crawling. If you are crawling, keep crawling. If you are walking, keep walking. If you are running, keep running. Do not stop being faithful. Do the right thing because it's the right thing to do.